For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Three teens who made national headlines last month for poaching and eating a beloved swan reported that they believed the large white bird to be a duck, which would also be out of season. We know this swan was beloved because it had a name. In this case, Faye. F-A-Y-E. Faye was snatched and eaten from a pond in Manlius, New York, by a 16, 17, and 18-year-old who also stole her four cygnets. Cygnets, C-Y-G-N-E-T-S, or what you call a baby swan. Like, you know, the kitten is to a cat, a puppy is to a dog, or a calf is to a cow. Comes from the old French word meaning little swan. Very creative. Anyway, the good people of Manlius, New York, were not happy about their local mascot being cooked and eaten. Swans are an icon for the village, according to the local media, and have been featured in the town since 1905. The teen trio told police they hopped the fence around the pond held Faye down as she sat on her nest, and decapitated her with a knife. They then stole her signets and tried to sell two of them at a local shop. Officials said at a press conference last week that the teens didn't know the swan was a swan. They believed it was a very large duck. It's unclear why that makes a difference. If someone had told them Faye was a swan, do you think they would have then canceled their plans? Um, I don't know. The three were charged with two felonies and two misdemeanors, and the town says they're taking steps to prevent similar incidents in the future. The mayor told local media that cameras will be added to the pond with video streaming to the police department and public works department, which tells me that uh, Manlius, New York, must be a very safe place if they're going to live stream the Swan Pond into the cop shop. Anyway, all four signets were recovered and will be returned to the pond when they're old enough to survive on their own. It's also worth noting that Faye had a mate 
a male swan named Manny. If I was a journalist in Manlius, New York, I'd be asking where Manny was when all this went down. Could he be complicit? There could be more to this story. This week, public lands, legislation, and a rare find. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was, you know, solid. Hit the trails to work on the winter beer gut, picked some mushrooms, caught a handful of walleye. Uh, one observation, if you recall back to a recent episode, we talked about it, this study that came out on mosquitoes being more attracted to certain scents that people wear. Smells, if you will. Well, if you're not a mosquito fan, try Old Spice Original High Endurance. I only say that because it seemed to really beat the heck out of whatever the girlfriend was wearing because she got torn up so bad that we had to walk away from mushrooms and get back to the truck. Now, the reason that not only mosquitoes, but plenty of other bugs and birds and mammals were present on that hike is because the area has great biodiversity. Lots of pollinator plants means lots of pollinators and those things that try to eat those pollinators. Just after you listen to this, the public comment period for the BLMs, Bureau of Land Management's Conservation and Landscape Health Rule, will end. We are still fleshing out how exactly the mechanics of all of these changes will work, but it is widely accepted that the potential benefits will dramatically accelerate our ability to ensure landscape level conservation on working BLM ground, which means more life out there in the big wide open, more bees, bats, bucks, bombers. So stop what you're doing and go to the Federal Register to comment. You can also go to the TRCP homepage, which will help you navigate your way through to make a comment, and we'll get a link up on the old meateater.com forward slash cal page as well. This is the rule package that includes the conservation lease program, uh, which we'll be covering more in depth here shortly, I promise. Stop. Go do it right now. We'll wait. It's not that hard. I'm finished. Moving on to the public land desk. It's the best of times and the worst of times over at the public land desk. This week, I have updates on stories that I'm sure will not die anytime soon. First, in Georgia, hunters and anglers in the Atlanta area were dismayed to learn that negotiations have stalled between the state and the new owners of the Pine Log Wildlife Management Area. As we covered in detail back in episode 162, the Pine Log WMA is a 14,000-acre property that outdoor enthusiasts have used for many years to hunt, fish, camp, hike, and horseback ride. But the owners of that property decided to sell last year, and it was unclear whether the state could retain control of the habitat and recreation area. The state says that they sent the landowner three written offers with a final offer of 100% of the appraised value of the land, but that wasn't enough, according to a report in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The landowner's representatives say the state's best offer was still millions of dollars short of what their clients would accept. The landowner gave the Department of Natural Resources until June 1 to up the ante, but the state was unable to do so. The Georgia DNR announced that the Pine Log WMA had been closed on June 2nd, and the agency is working to remove all equipment from the property. What happens now is unclear. The landowners will likely sell the property to developers who plan to build homes, apartment complexes, industrial warehouses, and mines, or, you know, I, don't have, I have no idea. It's not going to be habitat. We know that. 
A similar story has been playing out in Texas, but it's taken an unexpectedly positive turn for public land users. The Texas Parks and Wildlife Commission voted unanimously last month to use their power of eminent domain to seize Fairfield Lake State Park from its new private owners. The park located between Dallas and Houston has been leased to the state since the 1970s, but the owners recently decided to sell it to a private developer. The developer planned to turn the public park into an exclusive gated community, which of course we need more of, complete with million-dollar homes and a golf course. The Wildlife Commission's decision to use eminent domain will halt those development plans and put the state in negotiations with the new owners to purchase the property. If they can't come to an agreement, the case will end up in court. Public outcry has been a major driver of these efforts. Texas State Parks Division Director Rodney Franklin noted in a public meeting that 80% of the public comments the agency received ahead of the decision were in support of using eminent domain to save the park. The state legislature also passed a bill increasing the amount of funding available to purchase more land for the state park system, which was driven largely by the situation at Fairfield Park. This story is not over yet. The park was closed earlier this year, and it's unclear when it will open. If the developer and the state can't reach an agreement, it's anyone's guess what will happen when the case goes to court. As always, we'll keep you in the loop. But to go back to our BLM comment period. I'm telling you right now, if in a freedom-loving, and I'll just flat out say it, not real uh, pro-government state of Texas can open up a public comment period and have 80% of the people in Texas support using big government and the use of imminent domain to save a park, by God, your comments at the BLM are going to matter. So here's your second chance you know, pause the podcast, enter your public comment in, and tell them that, yes, you think conservation leases are a great idea. You think enhancing biodiversity and therefore recreation on BLM while keeping those lands in a working landscape, meaning that cattle grazers and the ability for those lands to still raise money and make you money and all those fun things that we talk about, but also more importantly, that we get to keep hunting on them. Those are all good things. That's, I mean, it's just a rant at this point. I apologize. We're moving on to the state of Colorado, where public land advocates have been fighting to increase access to the state's streams and rivers. You may remember from episode 211 that the Colorado Supreme Court was considering a case that could have clarified which streams are open to the public and which are not. At the center of that case is a man named Roger Hill, who sued after a landowner threw rocks at him for wading up a stream that ran through that landowner's property. That case has been making its way through the Colorado court system for the last five years, and the Supreme Court just issued its ruling. Rather than address the larger issues of stream access and land ownership, the court simply ruled that Hill does not have standing to bring his case. They said that as an individual, get this, okay, an individual resident of the state, Hill can't sue on the basis that the state owns the stream bed. In order for him to bring his case, he would first have to prove that the state owns the property. But, the court said, only the state can bring the case, not Hill. The result, other than making a bunch of lawyers a bunch of money and wasting everybody else's time, is that stream access laws in Colorado remain just as cloudy as they've always been. Until a court steps in or the legislature passes a law, Anglers won't know whether they can wade along a stream through private property 
If you live in Colorado and you want to access streams and rivers like freedom-loving Americans should, that means you have some work to do, which would mean whooping ass on the legislative front to motivate the state to actually work on behalf of its citizens instead of the situation where we have here a citizen working on behalf of the state. There's also the possibility of getting out there, raising a ton of signatures, and going the ballot initiative route, which, as we know from wolves in the state of Colorado, is something that can get done. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the ancient history desk. Archaeologists working in Israel have found bone whistles that may be the oldest known hunting calls in the world. Big thanks to listener Stu Crichton for sending us this story. Researchers found the 12,000-year-old bird calls in the Gila Valley, a wetland area used by millions of birds traveling between Europe, Asia, and Africa during their annual migrations. The whistles were made from wing bones of coot and teal and are intended to imitate the sounds made by birds of prey, such as the Eurasian sparrowhawk and the common kestrel. 
Hunters position themselves near waterfowl and use the flutes to attract the predatory birds. Waterfowl were scared into flight by the approaching raptors, and they may have been easier to catch in the ensuing chaos. Researchers also believe the flutes could have been used to trap the raptors themselves because their claws had several uses, including ornaments and to pierce bones for producing new whistles. Since archaeologists frown upon trying to play 12,000-year-old instruments, the researchers used mallard bones to create exact replicas of the prehistoric whistles. You can find out what they sound like right here. Phil? The scientists published their findings in the Nature Scientific Reports Journal. The article is open access, so you can look it up and see the bone whistles for yourself. Of course, it's possible the instruments were used for other purposes. The authors note that raptors had important symbolic and cultural significance in these societies. These whistles may have also been used in religious ceremonies, in much the same way Plains Indian tribes in North America used whistles to imitate the sound of the spotted owl. However, if these whistles were used to catch waterfowl, they would be the earliest evidence of the use of sound in hunting. Quote, the discovery provides important new information on hunting methods and supplements the various prehistorical tools that mark the start of the transition from agriculture and the cultivation of plants and animals in the southern Levant. Jason Phelps, if you're listening, think uh, bone whistles, right? Bone whistle predator calls. Big market out there, I promise. Moving on to the fishing desk. Five anglers, four of whom were children, died in a tragic fishing accident last week on the St. Lawrence River in Quebec. A group of 11 people were fishing from the shore for capelin, which is a small forage fish in the smelt family. Officials say the group got caught by the rising tide and weren't able to make it to safety in time. Fishing for capelin is usually done at night with scoops or a net. The group was on a sandbank accessed by all-terrain vehicles, and it's likely they just didn't notice the rising tide due to the darkness. The tide on the day of the incident was also one of the highest of the month. A 911 call came in at about 2 a.m., and police said initially that six people were rescued from the water and five others were reported missing. The bodies of four of those victims, all between the ages of 10 and 18, were found on the beach later that morning. A dive team found the body of a 30-year-old man, which accounted for all 11. It's unclear whether the group was local to the area and was aware of the danger that the tide posed. Another fishing expedition ended in tragedy last week when a 22-year-old man from Utah died during a spear fishing trip in Florida. The Martin County Sheriff's Office reported that the body of Max Robertson was recovered two and a half miles offshore, just north of West Palm Beach. Robertson was freediving and spear fishing with a group of friends when they say he dove into the water with a spear gun, but never resurfaced. They immediately called for help, and several agencies responded. The rescue team found his body about 50 feet under the surface. His spear gun had been deployed, and there were no obvious signs of trauma. Officials have not released the cause of death. If you're thinking, well, dirt, drowning, yes, you're right, but freediving leaves a lot of guesswork, right? You're solo, underwater. How this diver got to the point of drowning would be the mystery here. So, in regards to rising tides, I've been there. I get so obsessed fishing that my situational awareness can go down for sure. So good communication out there, folks. Long recreational season ahead of us. Be safe and have fun. Another potentially dangerous fishing incident, this one in Alaska, ended on a much more positive note. A man was hooligan fishing 
which is, you know, a real greasy kind of smelt like fish as well. Uh, he got stuck in the mud and bystanders were unable to pull him out. Hooligan are typically caught by dip net and fishermen can catch hundreds of them at a time. They're well-renowned for awesome bait fish. They're also known as candlefish because they're so oily. Reportedly, you can dry them and light them on fire. This particular fisherman was targeting hooligan along the 20-mile river in southeast Alaska. He got caught in the Turnigan Arm mud flats just south of Anchorage, and bystanders tried for an hour to pull him out before finally calling for help. It took the fire department 14 minutes to get the man out. They used a custom mud rescue tool that uses pressurized water to liquefy the mud around the victim. Not everyone is so lucky. Later that month, a 20-year-old Illinois man died after getting stuck in the mud and becoming submerged in the incoming tide in the exact same area. Rescue crews were dispatched to the area, but he had already been submerged by the time they got there. It took them another six hours to recover his body. All this to say, as fishing seasons heat up this summer, be careful out there. Fishing accidents could get a lot more serious than the odd treble hook in the finger. Moving on to the cat desk. Scientists have discovered a potential breakthrough in the war against feral cats. Regular listeners to this podcast know that I'm no fan of free-ranging cats. These invasive critters kill billions of birds, lizards, and small mammals every year, not to mention spread disease and upset sensitive ecosystems. The most common so-called humane method of dealing with feral cat populations is something called trap-neuter-release, which is complete crap. Cats are rounded up, they're spayed or neutered, and then released into the same place where they were trapped. It's costly and time-consuming, and the data on its effectiveness is mixed at best. Now a group of scientists think they have a better solution. Reporting in the journal Nature Communications, they describe an injected gene therapy that renders female cats infertile. The researchers injected six female cats with the gene therapy and kept three additional cats as the control group. The control cats gave birth to litters after mating with fertile males only once, but two of the cats that received the therapy also mated with those same males and none of them got pregnant. This is a proof-of-concept trial, and it's still years away from hitting the streets, but if it can get the necessary approvals, it could make controlling feral cat populations quicker, easier, and cheaper. It only requires one injection, and it can last a cat's entire life. One of the cats that received the therapy mated with a male two years after injection without getting pregnant. Of course, an infertile female cat kills just as many squirrels and rabbits as a fertile one. I understand that, in theory, a feral cat colony will slowly disappear if the females aren't having kittens, but that only works if people stop letting their cats out to roam where they can get pregnant and then dump the litter in the woods behind the local Walmart. Tale as old as time. A gene therapy like this can be useful as a tool alongside euthanization and laws that ban free-ranging cats. However, by itself, I would be uh, quite dubious as to the results. And until I got to like meet the uh, feral cat catching team that's going to go out and implement this. Moving on to the legislative desk. Legislative sessions have ended in many states, but there's still plenty of news at the legislative desk. In Pennsylvania, the legislature is set to reconvene on June 19th when the Senate will consider Senate Bill 344. This bill would allow non-resident college and university students to purchase hunting licenses at resident prices. Why is that important? According to Don Rank, the chairman of the Pennsylvania chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, college students often give up hunting for good. They may have grown up in the woods, but if they can't get out during the semester, they sometimes lose interest. 
Lowering the cost of admission will help keep those kids engaged while also encouraging non-hunting students to take up the sport. Under today's rules, a non-resident student in Pennsylvania would have to pay $102 annually for a license. Under this bill, that number would be knocked down to only 21 bucks. To get involved, contact your Pennsylvania state senator. In Louisiana, the legislature voted last week to begin a process that could expand gator hunting in the state. House Concurrent Resolution 132 requests that the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, quote, study and compile data relative to alligator markets and populations and commercial, recreational, and nuisance hunting in this state. The resolution, which passed both the House and Senate on nearly unanimous votes, was motivated by what some say is a gator population that has outgrown its welcome. Legislators commended the department for bringing alligators back from the brink of extinction, but pointed out that the state has three times as many alligators as Florida. There are an estimated 2 million wild gators along with another 1 million captive gators in the Bayou State. They say these expanding populations are causing problems among residents and fishermen, and the Wildlife Department should study how this population is affecting residents. This is a significantly watered-down resolution from the original. Rather than urge and request the department to study alligators, That resolution directed the department to increase commercial tags, reinstate a bonus tag program, and increase opportunities for recreational hunting. While I am always happy to see hunting opportunities expanded when a population can sustain them, I'm glad the legislature backed off. Politicians shouldn't be dictating wildlife policy. This resolution gets the ball rolling, but it doesn't compel wildlife biologists to do anything too specific. Hopefully, their final report will recommend increasing hunting opportunities so that hunters can have more chances at a gator and residents don't have to worry about finding a crocodilian in their backyard fish pond. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at meateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. On top of that, You may have uh, looked outside the window and noticed that that lawn is getting out of hand. Time to tame that sucker down by going to www.steeldealers.com and finding a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.